The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. Appreciate you being with us this morning. We're going to continue this morning our study of Israel. I know I just kind of got stuck on this subject, and uh, you know I, I just I think it's a, an important subject because you know Zionism is such a predominant thing in, in our culture, and I think it really just needs to be dealt with every which way we can. So this morning I just want to look at the words, and in this way all Israel will be saved. All right, this phrase is found in Romans 11.26. This is only five words in the Greek, but upon it have been built multiple theories about Israel. you got modern Zionists and dispensationalists who wish to see some form of restored physical Israel and temple. And they'll use these verses to support that view, that someday the temple's going to be rebuilt, someday God's going back to dealing with Israel. And they, see, they actually see Romans 11 as teaching a restoration of geopolitical Israel, which shows you how the same text of Scripture can be seen in so many different ways, totally different opposite ways. Bob Deffenbaugh, who is a dispensationalist, writes this. He says, Israel's full and final recovery has surely been implied in the preceding verses. Talking about Romans 11. But lest there be any doubt that God is going to restore Israel to a place of prominence and blessing in fulfillment of His covenants with the patriarchs, the final recovery of Israel is clearly established in verses 25 through 32. So he talks about this text in Romans 11 supporting the fact that geopolitical Israel is going to be restored. He says to a place of prominence and blessing. But does Romans 11 teach that? I certainly don't see it. It seems to me that Israel's blindness and judgment is what is clearly taught in this chapter 11. Nowhere in these verses is even hinted at that Israel will be restored nationally. Now, some teach that Israel has to be restored because of the land promises that God made to Israel. And they would say, well, those are unconditional, and God has to fulfill that. Is that true? Well, they'll use verses like this in Genesis 15, 18. On that day, Yahweh made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And then we'll go to verses like 17, 8. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. Well, we have to ask, was God faithful to these promises? Did Israel inherit the land? Well, here's the thing that's interesting. If you look at all the land promises, there's like four or five different boundaries. So you're like, well, which exactly are the ones that they're going to inherit? Well, the Bible tells us that God kept His promise. Joshua 21.45, Not one word of all the good promises that Yahweh had made to Israel, the house of Israel had failed, it all came to pass. So Joshua was saying, look at everything God promised us as far as the land, we got it, we're in it. Now several hundred years later, at the height of the earthly kingdom, and his dedication of the temple, Solomon says this, Blessed be Yahweh, who has given rest to his people Israel, according to all he has promised not One word has failed of all his good promise, which he spoke by Moses, his servant. Now, I don't think that could get a whole lot clearer. The physical land promise made to Abraham were fulfilled. They lived in that land. They enjoyed that land. There is no land promises yet to be fulfilled. Now, I know that some people object by saying, but Genesis 17.8 says the land is to be an everlasting possession. Okay, it does say that. But what does it mean? And here's what we need to understand. Israel's inheritance of the land was a type. The land represented the presence 
of Yahweh. When they were in the land, they were in God's presence. When they were out of the land, they were away from Yahweh. So that was the purpose of the land. You're in the presence of God. The land was a type, and the anti-typical fulfillment came at the end of the 40-year transition period, which lasted from 30 to 70 AD, when the old covenant came to an end, the new covenant was fully consummated, and the inheritance of the new heavens and new earth arrived, where the Bible says we tabernacle with God. We dwell with Him. We're in His presence. The unconditional promises were to Abraham and his seed, which is Christ. So the land was a type, and the land pictured the presence of Yahweh with His people. And in the New Covenant, that's exactly what we have, which is the anti-type. Now, notice Joshua's words to Israel before his death. He says, and now I'm about to go the way of all the earth. And you know in your heart and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that Yahweh your God promised concerning you. So again, we hear that Joshua saying, listen, God promises these things, not one word has failed. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. And you're saying that again, he's stressing it, people. But, <laughs> just as all good things that Yahweh your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so Yahweh will bring upon you all the evil things until He has destroyed you from off this good land that Yahweh your God has given you if you transgress the covenant of Yahweh your God. So you got the land, you live in the land, but listen, if you don't live in obedience to Yahweh, you're going to be removed from that land which He commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them. Then the anger of Yahweh will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that He has given you. So, He's telling them here, alright, you're in the land, you got the promises I gave you, you're living in this land, but let me tell you something, if you're not going to obey Me, you're going to lose this land. So the land was theirs as long as they were faithful to Yahweh. This is the same thing that Moses said to the children of Israel at the end of the wanderings in the book of Deuteronomy. Look what Moses says. Deuteronomy 28. If this is not a chapter that you're familiar with, you need to be. All right? It's the blessings and cursings. Deuteronomy 28, 1 and 2 says, And if you faithfully obey the voice of Yahweh, your God, being careful to do all His commandments that I command you today, Yahweh your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of Yahweh your God. Now, for the next 12 verses, he lists these blessings. All kinds of different blessings if you live in obedience. But then in verse 15, the tone shifts, and it says, but if... You will not obey the voice of Yahweh your God or be careful to do all His commandments and His statutes that I command you today. Then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. So we have 12 verses of blessings and now from here down there's 53 verses of curses. Hey, that rhymes. 53 verses of curses. And I would really encourage you to take the time to read over Deuteronomy 28. And just understand that God's saying, listen, He's telling Israel, if you obey me, look at how blessed you're going to be. If you don't obey me, look at the cursings. I think this is true in the life of the church, people. If we want to live in obedience to the Lord, the Lord is going to bless us abundantly. But when we live in disobedience, there's consequences to that. Well, I want you to just see one of the curses the Lord lists here in Deuteronomy 28, 63 and 64. And as Yahweh took delight... And doing you good and multiplying you, so Yahweh will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. That's strong. God delighted in blessing you. Now He's going to delight in destroying you. And you shall be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of. And Yahweh will scatter you among all people from one end of the earth to the other. All right, strong stuff. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, 
which neither you nor your fathers have known. Now, did Israel transgress the covenant? Absolutely. They disobeyed Yahweh. And Yahweh had warned them over and over that if they disobeyed, He would remove them from His presence. He would drive them out of the land. Because of their disobedience, the kingdom of God was taken from them. We saw earlier in this series that where the Lord in Matthew was telling them, listen, the kingdom of God is going to be removed from you and given to a people, a different people, because of their sin. <clears throat> so these people say, well, the land's got to be theirs. They've got to go back. They had the land. God told them, you live in obedience, you'll live there. They didn't do it. They were, so they were put out of His presence. That's what you understand, though. The land represented the presence of God. They're removed from His presence. All right, with that in mind, I want to look at this text in Romans 11. Now, several weeks ago, we talked about the olive tree. And I said that I see the root of the tree as Abraham and the unilateral covenant that God made with him. I see the olive tree as the people of Yahweh which is made up of both Jews and Gentiles, believing Jews and believing Gentiles. So the root of the tree is the promises. We inherit those promises as Gentiles, as believing Gentiles, because we've been grafted into the tree. Now, through the analogy of the olive tree, Paul shows that the Messianic promises were for one people of Yahweh, composed of two separate and distinct national origins. The olive tree represents all believers, both Jews and Gentiles, they're all in the tree, and together they make up the one people of Yahweh. Now, from this analogy, Paul writes this, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, Paul begins this verse with the Greek word gar, which joins it, to what proceeds. Paul is saying that this passage explains what he has already said. And I see this as referring to the olive tree and the union of Jew and Gentile into one tree, which he calls a mystery. I don't want you to be unaware. Now, this is a phrase he uses often to draw attention to the importance of what is about to be said. And he switches here from the singular in verse 24 to the plural in verse 25. In other words, he moves his warning from warning the Gentiles to addressing the entire congregation here. He says, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery. Now, what is the mystery that he doesn't want them to be unaware of? Well, there's different views on what this is, but I think the best way to understand it is just let Paul explain it like he does in chapter 16, verse 25 and 26. He says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Yeshua the Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed. And through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the commandment of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. So, a mystery is something that's been hidden in the past and it's now revealed in the Scripture. The word translated mystery is the Greek word musterion, and Vine says this in his expository dictionary on musterion. He says, in the New Testament, it denotes not the mysterious, but that which, being outside the range of unassisted natural apprehension, can be made known only by divine revelation, and is made known in a manner and at a time appointed by God and to those who are illuminated by His Spirit. In the ordinary sense, a mystery implies knowledge withheld. Its scriptural significance is truth revealed. So the mystery is something that was hidden in the past. Now it's revealed in Scripture. Paul writes this in Colossians. He said, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. So he says the mystery is now being revealed. And what's interesting and important to understand here is the word mystery in Paul's writings occurs in very close proximity to the word stewardship. He uses this in verse 25. He says, "...which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you 
to make the Word of God fully known, the mystery, hidden for ages. So, Paul is associating his stewardship with the mystery. He does this over and over in his letters. And what I think he's saying is his stewardship is seen tied up in the deliverance of this mystery. We could almost say that's really Paul's calling. That's his stewardship, to deliver the mystery. Now, the Greek word musterion occurs 27 times in the New Testament, three of which are in the Gospels, where Matthew, Mark, and Luke all use it in the same context. It's used four times in Revelation, and the remaining 20 occurrences are in Paul's letters, where it takes on the form of a descriptor of the Gospel. This is the mystery. So Paul's use of this word musterion is not to indicate secret teaching, not some rite, not some ceremony revealed only to elite initiates as the mystery religions used it, but it's truth revealed to all believers in the New Testament. And this truth, as Paul says in Colossians 1.26, is now in the New Testament being revealed to the saints. And it's been hidden, he says, from ages and generations, namely the old covenant people. Now, in Ephesians 3, Paul unfolds in detail this mystery. He says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Yeshua, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship, there he's talking about his stewardship, and he connects it with mystery, the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've briefly written. So again, he he is connecting, it's his stewardship to deliver the mystery. And he says, I gained this mystery through revelation. Well, what is the mystery? He says, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. That's important. This mystery wasn't known in the past. As it has now been revealed to the holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Yeshua through the gospel. So Paul tells us that he's a steward of the mystery and that no revelation of this mystery was given in the Tanakh, but that it was revealed for the first time in the New Testament, which was not made known to the sons of men in previous generations, as it has now been revealed. Now, as is a comparative conjunction hoax, and it's descriptive, meaning that no revelation of this mystery was given in the Tanakh but it was revealed for the first time in the New Testament. Have you ever heard it said there's nothing new in the New Testament? I've said that until I taught through Ephesians, verse by verse. See, there's just something about studying the Bible that changes your view on things, right? Because you hear these things, there's nothing new in the New Testament. That's not what Paul says, all right? Paul says this wasn't known. And then he's using hosts here to say, Listen, now it's made known. All right, it has now been revealed. Verse 6 in the Greek begins with the present infinitive, enai, which explains the content of the mystery. Paul tells us that Gentiles are now fellow heirs, they're fellow members of the one body, and they're fellow partakers of the promise in Christ by the gospel. That's the mystery. That's the secret. That's the relationship that didn't exist in the Tanakh. Now, the Jew and Gentile would have equal standing before Yahweh because of their faith in Yeshua, the Messiah. Now, the Tanakh spoke about Gentile salvation. The Tanakh spoke about Jewish salvation. But the Tanakh never fully revealed that these two would be brought together in one body, the body of Christ, the church. Gentiles are seen experiencing salvation in the Tanakh. But it's always in context of Israel. They have to come through Israel. Now we find God is going to bring Gentiles and Jews together in a relationship of one body. Paul further explains this in chapter 2. He says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. We talked about that last week. That's a technical designation for Israel, which makes it so powerful when Paul in Philippians 3 said, we are the circumcision. We're the true people of God now. 
He says, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. This is Gentiles. We're separated. We're alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. We were strangers to the covenants, which are the roots of the olive tree. This was the position of all Gentiles. They were hopeless. They were without God because Israel had the covenants, the promises. We didn't have them. But Paul goes on to say, But now, in Christ Yeshua, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one. He has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He made two into one. We've been brought near to God, the God of Israel, by the blood of Christ. We've been grafted into the roots of that olive tree. And notice that both groups are now one and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. That's Gentiles are far off, Israel's near, for through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So it's one body, both groups, Jew and Gentile. In Christ, we both have access to the Father. That is the mystery, that Jew and Gentile are one in Christ. We're both in the body of Christ. We're fellow citizens. And this is what Paul's just been saying in Romans 11 about the olive tree. That the Jews and Gentiles were grafted into that same tree, sharing the same root, being part of the body of Christ. Now, he says in our text, a partial hardening has come upon Israel. I don't want you to be... All right, he tells the mystery, the mystery of Jew and Gentile being together. Then he says a partial hardening has come upon Israel. Now, the language is really important here, all right? Because most people get this mixed up. But partial here is adverbial, and it modifies has come. It does not modify hardening. And it should read this way. A hardening has happened in part to Israel. The hardening is not partial. The hardening is total, but it only happened to part of Israel. Not all of Israel was hardened, just part of it. This is really important. Hopefully you'll grasp this as we move along here. The remnant was never hardened, right? And this is what Paul said. In verse 70, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Now, please notice, the elect obtained this. The rest, which is Israel, the non-elect of Israel were hardened. So only part of Israel is hardened. And that part is the majority, all right? But he's just saying that the hardening is not nationwide. All of Israel wasn't hardened. There are some who have been saved out of the total depravity and brought to the knowledge of the Lord Yeshua. In other words, he's saying the same thing he said in verse 5. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant among Israel chosen by grace. So Paul has said, if there is no hardening of, of some of Israel then there is no Gentile salvation, Romans eleven twelve. Now, if their trespass, Israel's, means the riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So Israel's sin, Paul's saying, brought about Gentile salvation. Now, let me ask you this. What else did Israel's hardening bring about? Well, it brought about the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 which brought an end to the Old Covenant, mode of existence, and brought in the full consummation of the New Covenant. Judgment had to come upon Israel because of her sin. So he said that this hardening, this hardening that was partial, came upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now again, the language here is really important that we understand so we can get right what it means here. What does the word until mean? Most people think, okay, it happened until this, and then, then the Gentiles' fullness comes in. No, well, listen. Let's look at it this way. The Greek phrase here is akrehos, and it means even to a point. 
Thayer says this, it's used of things that actually occurred and up to the beginning of which something continued. It's a point of reference, not a point of cessation. Usually we think of that way, oh, until this, then it stopped, right? No. And let me show you some other uses of akrehos in the New Testament to help you understand this. Stephen, when he's recounting Israel's history before the high priest, says this, But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there rose over Egypt another king that didn't know Joseph. Now the word until here, again, is akrehos. So does this mean that when the new king arose that didn't know Joseph, when he took the throne that Israel didn't multiply anymore? No, that's not what it means. It's a point of reference. And I can prove it to you, all right? Look at Exodus 1, 6 and 7. It says, Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful. They increased greatly, and they multiplied, and they grew exceedingly strong, so the land was filled with them. Now, that's exactly what Stephen said in Acts 7. But look what happened when the new king took over. It says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who didn't know Joseph. So if until, if akrehos, used by Stephen and Acts, means cessation or termination, then the children of Israel would no longer increase or multiply. And the new king, in fact, did everything he could to stop them from multiplying. Verse 12 says, But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. Now this is after the new king. They're multiplying. And more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So the king commands the midwives to kill the male Israelites at birth. But they wouldn't do it, and so the children of Israel continued to multiply. Now look at verse 20. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. Now in Acts, he says, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until Achrehos. And then this is the time in verse 20, it's after the new king, they're still multiplying. So it didn't stop. All right? It didn't stop. So I hope you see that the Greek phrase akrehos doesn't mean cessation or termination. It's a point of reference. Let me show you another use of akrehos in the New Testament. Galatians 3.19. Why then the law? Well, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Who's the offspring that's coming that the promise was made to? It's Christ, Right? And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, let me ask you this. Did the law of Moses end when Christ was born? No, it didn't. The law didn't end until AD 70 when it was fulfilled. Part of the law was the covenantal curses for disobedience. And until those curses were fulfilled, the law was still in place. Well, this took place in AD 70 when Jerusalem was judged and destroyed. So we could read our text. This way, a hardening has happened in part to Israel, even unto the point where the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So it's not saying that Israel's hardening stops when the fullness of the Gentiles happens. And that's how most people translate this. You know, they get the idea, well, as soon as the, you know, the Gentiles' fullness comes in, Israel's hardness will stop. And it's important that we get this right here. All right? The fullness of the Gentiles. Let's talk about that. What is that? Well, Bob Deffenbaugh, again, who I say is a dispensationalist, he writes this, The fullness of the Gentiles referred to that time when the day of the Gentiles ends and the restoration of Israel begins. So they think this, this idea, when the Gentiles' fullness comes in, then, then God's done with them and He goes back to Israel. See, they take that until there. Now we're going back to Israel. This is not what the text says. And Paul has already said this. The elect the elect obtained it, the rest were hardened. Now, the form of the word indicates that they were hardened by some outside power, some outside force, and that force is none other than Yahweh Himself. Now, I need you to think with me about this for a minute. Paul says the elect obtained it. All right? So, if the elect obtained it, who are the rest? They are the non-elect, right? you got the elect and the non-elect. When do the non-elect become elect? They never do, right? 
God, out of humanity, chose a people for Himself. The others were non-elect. So you have the elect obtained it, the rest were hardened. If they're hardened, they're hardened forever because the non-elect are never going to become elect. And the rest are those who were not chosen. And since they were not chosen, they're never going to be chosen. God didn't change His mind and said, ah, I didn't choose you, but I think I will now. No. They're hardened. This, and this is what I want you to understand. This hardening is a permanent state that brings judgment. So those of Israel who were hardened were always going to be that way. And so there's no, you know, God's changing His mind and later going to bring Israel back at some point. No. The fullness of the Gentiles is not going to change Israel's hardening. They're hardened because God didn't choose them. John MacArthur writes this. And what is the fullness of the Gentiles? That's the church. When God has all the redeemed in the church collected together, He'll gather them to Himself in the rapture, I believe, destroy the apostate church on earth, and graft back Israel in the tribulation, and then comes the millennial kingdom and world blessings. So see, this is what most of the church believes, that God's going to go back to Israel at some point. They're still waiting, and He's just going to bless them, and they're going to be an earthly people with an earthly kingdom, and the church is a spiritual people with a spiritual kingdom, and never the two mix. One commentator writes this. He says, The most credible interpretation seems to be that a day will come when God finishes His work among the Gentiles, and then will turn once again to the mighty power and saving Jews. Another writes, God knows the number of the elect Gentiles He is calling to Christ. When that number is complete, Israel's blindness will be removed. That text does not say that. That will happen when Jesus returns to the earth. Listen, Israel's hardening will never be removed because it's the non-elect or hardened. And non-elect are always non-elect. They're going to be judged, not saved. Most commentators see the fullness of the Gentiles here as meaning the full number of the Gentiles. And with the help of the NIV... The nearly inspired version. Nearly inspired version says the full number of the Gentiles. That's a bad translation. The contemporary English Bible says the complete number. That's also a bad translation. The word fullness here is the Greek word pleroma, which means completeness. It's the same word used by Paul in verse 12 where he says, Now if their trespass means riches for the world... And if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So full inclusion is the same word as in our text. It's the word pleroma. And here it's talking about Israel. This fullness of the Gentiles coincides with the full inclusion of Israel. And I think that the fullness of the Gentiles is referring to the consummation of salvation that was to happen and the age to come. So that's the fullness of the Gentiles. The fullness of the Gentiles is the Gentiles receive the consummation of their salvation. And this happens at the parousia. Look at Ephesians 11 through 13. And he gave some apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. All right, these are the gifts. We're building up the body. Watch. Until, oh, there's that word until. This is akrehos, right? No, this is not. This is makri. Different word, okay? Which means up to a certain point. This is denoting terminus. In other words, God gave apostles, He gave prophets, He gave evangelists, He gave, he gave these gifts until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the statute of the fullness of Christ. In other words, these gifts were given until the body of Christ is matured. All right? When did that happen? At 80, 70. All right? Fullness here is pleroma. The gifts stopped when the body was matured. So the fullness of the Gentiles has to do with their perfection, their maturity in Christ. It has nothing to do with numbers. It has to do with maturity of the body and when it was matured. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. In this way, 
In what way? Well, there's three main questions here that we have to answer. First of all, who is all Israel? Okay? Secondly, when is their salvation occur? And thirdly, how is it accomplished? Those are the questions. Now, Cranefield lists four options for who. Listen to these options. You pick one, okay? I'll give you four. He says, A, the elect, all the elect, Jews and Gentiles alike. B, all the elect of the nation of Israel. Gentiles get left out there. C, the whole of the nation, including every individual. Or D, national Israel as a whole, but not necessarily every individual. Okay, so which one do you pick? I'm going to pick A. It's all the elect, Jews and Gentiles alike. All Israel, all right? Now, the different views as to when all Israel will be saved are A, during the course of present history, sometime, B, immediately before the second coming, or C, at the second coming. I'm going to say C, at the second coming. Okay, this is a multiple guess. You should be able to guess one of them, all right? <laughs> the different view of how all Israel will be saved are A, through them coming to faith in Christ. Okay, well, let's just pick A, right? We don't need to hear any of the rest. B, through their own faith. I don't even know what that means, all right? Or C, through some direct divine intervention which may or may not involve Christian faith. Now, let's just stick with A there, all right? So, dispensationalism says that at the end of the church age, the church gets raptured off the earth, and God once again begins to deal with the nation Israel. They see the church as a parenthesis. In other words, God dealing with Israel, Israel disobeys, and so God scratches his head and says, now what will I do? They're ruining my plan. So he goes, oh, I'll take the church. So the church is a parenthesis. The clock has stopped. Okay, they say. The clock has stopped. We're in the parenthesis. When God's done with the church, he goes back to it, and then the clock restarts. See, so when God said, soon, well, the clock stopped. So time is not important right now because we're in the church age. Do you get how they, that's how they deal with time statements. Well, he said he was coming soon, but they didn't do right, so God stopped the clock. We're in a t- holding pattern. He'll restart the clock, and then soon will mean soon again. That's why, that's how it gets all messed up like it is now, okay? Yeah, I know, it's crazy. But he's going to go back to Israel, and the church is gone. We're raptured. We're in heaven. We're having a glorious time. And he's going back to Israel, and he's going to deal with them. And the millennium is going to be a time of Jewish dominance on the earth. Christ is going to set up a throne in Jerusalem, and it's just going to be all, and then all Israel is going to be saved. And that refers to Israel being restored as a nation, national Israel. Well, John MacArthur writes this. He says, and so all Israel will be saved. You know he wanted to say that. And please, please, he says, there is no way to interpret that other than as the nation Israel and be fair with the text. No way. So MacArthur's telling you there's no alternatives, people. Just believe what I'm telling you because there's no other way you can do this. And if you try to do it another way, then you just messed up because there is no other way. He says, it cannot refer to a Jewish remnant. It is said in contrast to the doctrine of the remnant, which has already been given. What he is saying is there has always been a remnant and and there's always been a group of Jewish redeemed. But someday the nation will be redeemed. Any other viewpoint does terrible injustice to the text. In other words, don't be so stupid as to think you have a different view, okay? And let me tell you something, people. There's nothing in this text about national Israel. And as we've said, those who are not chosen are hardened. That's the end of it. Now, many commentators see a real contradiction that they just can't figure out between Romans 9 and Romans 11. Because in Romans 9, insists that salvation is promised only for spiritual Israel. He chose Jacob. Jacob have I loved. Esau I hated. He, and he's just going over this sovereign choice of God and talking about the spiritual. And then you get to chapter 11 and they say, Oh, now the nation, everybody's going to be saved. That would be a contradiction. If Paul was saying that, that ethnic Israel would be saved, but he's not saying that. It's only a remnant, he says, that's going to be saved. Now, other scholars, and 
believe me, I use that term loosely, have suggested that Paul didn't realize what he would write in chapter 11 when he wrote chapter 9. Okay, I mean, this is a scholarly, supposedly scholarly view. Well, he, he wrote 9, then he said, well, I forgot about all Israel's going to be saved. I must have messed up. Wait a minute. This is God writing the book of the Bible, okay, not Paul. And he knew what he was going to write in 11 when he wrote 9. Maybe Paul didn't, but God did, all right? So he didn't get mixed up. There's no confusion there. Making all Israel mean ethnic Israel, geopolitical Israel, does great problems with the text. Some scholars also say that the promise of salvation to all ethnic Israel contradicts what Paul says about the Jews, for example, in 1 Thessalonians. He talks about the Jews, he said, who killed both the Lord Yeshua and the prophets. They did do that. They drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them. See, the non-chosen are hardened and they're going to receive wrath. Well, after all the time Paul spent in Romans teaching that national, nationality doesn't matter, race doesn't matter, it's faith that matters, does he now in 11 contradict everything he says and say, don't worry, everyone, every Jew will be saved? No, that's ridiculous. He does not. Look what John Piper writes. You know, these, a lot of these guys, they have a big name. They have a big following because they have a big name, and so they say something and everybody just believes them. Okay? I don't care who they are. Everybody, and I keep telling you that, don't believe what I tell you. You've got to research and find out for yourself. Something might sound good to you. Look at it. Piper says, I don't think the meaning of Israel changes between verse 25 and 26. The hardened Israel, the nation as a whole, will be saved. The saved Israel, the nation as a whole. Well, first of all, John... Israel was never hardened as a whole. The text says a rem, there's a remnant, always has been a remnant according to grace. So you messed up there. Secondly, if you don't think the meaning of Israel changes between two verses, you don't understand Paul's opening argument in 9.6. He says they're not all descended from Israel who belong to Israel. That's in the same verse there, saying there's two Israels. There's a national Israel. But everybody who's from national Israel doesn't really belong to the Israel of God because they haven't trusted him. Paul opened his argument with a clear statement that he was redefining Israel. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. So, as then to the who, I see all Israel here is referring to the remnant of the house of Israel, the remnant of the house of Judah, and all believing Gentiles. The all here is the all of Romans 10, 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call upon Him. So all Israel is all who call upon Him. It is all who share in the faith of Abraham, according to Romans 4, 16. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all His offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Now, it here refers back to 13. The promise to Abraham and his descendants was that he would be heir of the world. It, and the promise is by faith. So what is the guarantee? What is the promise that you will inherit? Well, the answer is God's grace. He says the promise may rest on the grace the only way our eternal future is guaranteed is if it rests on grace. Free and undeserved, the work of God for His people. Now, the last part of this verse sounds a little confusing, but the intent is just to say that the inheritance is available to both Jewish believers and Gentile believers who share the faith of Abraham. It's always God's plan to have a single worldwide family, a single seed, Messiah and His people. This, we've gone over this verse a lot. This is a critical verse. The promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. And it does not say to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one and your offspring, who's Christ. So basically we could do this. The promises were made to Abraham and Christ. 
That's it. Right? Then in verse 26, he says this, For in Christ Yeshua, you're all sons of God through faith. Sons of God is a designation for Israel, but now he's using it of believers, because we're children of God. Abraham is now the father for all who believe, not just Jews, but Gentiles also. Look at Romans 4.11. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So he was uncircumcised, but he had faith. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. The father of all who believe. That's Abraham. And Paul had been redefining Israel all through this letter. We looked at this last week. He's not a Jew who was one outwardly. What? That's what Judaism was. It was outward. You, you did an outward circumcision. You were a Jew because you were a Jew born into that thing. He says, no. He says a Jew is one inwardly. Paul is redefining this. It's not about race. 9.6, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. There's a true Israel, a believing remnant within the nation. He was telling them that physical descent didn't mean they were the people of God. Things changed when the Son of God came. Galatians 3.29, if you're Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring. So you inherit the promises, right? Heirs according to the promise. We are Abraham's seed because we are in Christ. And he was the seed of Abraham through the promises were given. And it doesn't matter whose blood you have in your veins. We talked last week, there is no Jewish race today. It's all about faith in your heart. It's covenant, not race, that makes you a Jew. Look at Paul says in Galatians 6, 15 and 16. For neither circumcision counts for anything. You know, do you understand what that would mean saying that to a Jew? They prided themselves. That was everything to them. He says circumcision count, doesn't count for anything. Nor uncircumcision. Ah, either way, it doesn't matter. What? What matters is a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Now, what is this rule, he says, that we're walk by? Well, the rule ties, I think, directly into the previous verses where Paul says he has no boast except in the cross. And that's the rule of his life. There's only one walk that we are to walk, and that's the way of the cross. And the cross here, people, is metonymy for justification by faith alone. We're to walk by that rule. It's a very narrow path. Very few find it. Those who find it are the remnant chosen by grace whom God has drawn. Well, we believers are the Israel of God by faith in Yeshua. Every Jew, every Gentile who has trusted in the Lord Yeshua can say, I'm a Jew. These are my promises. This is my story. This is my Messiah. This is my God. Who is all Israel? It's all true Israel, all spirituals, all those who are united to Christ by faith. All believers, all those who are in that olive tree by faith are Israel. It has nothing to do with the nation. The nation was a type. That type's been fulfilled. Now the question, when? When will this salvation occur? Well, he says, in this way, which is huto, and it can't be translated in this manner, in this way all Israel will be saved. Huto can refer to what precedes or what follows, and it seems logical here to connect it with what follows. Israel's going to be saved when the Deliverer comes out of Zion. Now, this text, the Deliverer will come out of Zion, he will banish ungodliness from Jacob, is conflated from Isaiah 59.20 and 27.9. And it's a reference to the second coming. This is one of those places where if you don't know what time it is, you're going to misinterpret Scripture. Because all Israel being saved is not future to us, as the dispensationalists say. It happened at the return of Christ, which happened in AD 70. And I think those of you who have got into it realize that preterism is more than just an eschatology. It's a hermeneutic. It affects how you interpret Scripture. Because if you know what time you're living in, you know what time they're writing in, it changes a lot of things. Now, salvation, which was their perfection in Christ, 
was not complete until the return of Christ. I know so many people are confused on this, but listen, during that 40-year transition period, salvation was a hope, righteousness was a hope, adoption was a hope. It talked about them having it, but it also talked about it being a hope because it was the already but not yet. Now, I hate to even use that phrase because it's so overused today, because most commentators today think we're still in the already but not yet. Okay? We're still waiting. No, that already but not yet was only during the 40 years. They looked forward to salvation. Salvation couldn't be complete until Christ finished the work, until He came out of the temple, came back the second time, it was finished. Let me show you a few verses on that. Hebrews 9.28 So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. So this is the only place in the New Testament where the return of Christ is called a second coming. And he said the purpose of the second coming is for salvation. It's to save those who are waiting. Peter states that their salvation was not yet complete. In 1 Peter 1.5, he says, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. So it was ready to be revealed, he says, in the last time, which would happen at the return of Christ. Eternal life was something that was to come to them at the second coming in the age to come. This is one of my favorite verses, Mark 10.30. Who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, the time of the writing, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands and persecutions. Now watch. And in the age to come, eternal life. What? They don't get it now? No, you get it in the age to come because that was a condition of the coming age. Eternal life, salvation was completed. So when did salvation occur? When did this happen? At the return of Christ, both houses received their salvation, their fullness, and the Gentiles also received their salvation in its consummated form, in its fullness. In the Tanakh, because he says here, the Deliverer will come out of Zion. In the Tanakh, the Deliverer is Yahweh. All right, we see this in Psalm 18.2. Yahweh is my rock. My fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, my horn of salvation, my stronghold. So for Paul, the deliverer is Yeshua, because as we've said over and over, Yeshua is Yahweh. He's the God of Israel. You know, you read verses like this and you think it just shows you how the Hebrew mind is so different from us. People say, tell me about God. What's He like? Oh, God is love. He's faithful. He's, you know, something you can't see. But to the Hebrew, what is God? God is a rock. I can picture a rock. Okay, I get that. He's a fortress. Oh, I got a fortress. I'm safe there, okay? He's a deliverer. Again, He's going to save me. He's going to deliver me. He's a, again, He's a rock. That's one of the most frequent used analogies of God. He's a rock. And who might take refuge? He's my shield. Got that. Protect. See, they got all these picture forms, but this is who God is to them. He's the fortress. He's the deliverer. How is this going to be accomplished? How is Israel going to be saved? It's through coming to faith in Yeshua. All right? It's not God doing some supernatural work in the nation and saying, okay, all you nation, you're all good now. All right? Which is a long ways from 2,000 years ago, the people he judged. All right? Look at Acts 4, 11 and 12. And Yeshua is the stone that was rejected. Now, he's quoting here, but he adds, by you. <laughs> I love it. He's making it personal to them, all right? Uh, let me quote to you Psalm 118, but I want to tell you, the, rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else. There's nobody else, okay? There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So it's only through faith in Christ that man will be saved. That's it. There's no, you know, like the dispensationalists want to say, someday in the future God's just going to say, okay, Israel, you all come in, doesn't matter what you believe, doesn't, none of that matters. No. There is no salvation. There is no deliverance for national Israel. It's hard for people to grasp, I know, but Yahweh is through with national Israel. He broke off their relationship. He divorced them in AD 70, gave them a covenant degree of divorce, put them away, 
And when he destroyed the temple, he destroyed the city, he made sure they understand, we're not doing this anymore. No more. Israel went from the type to the anti-type, the true, the spiritual. We don't need these sacrifices anymore. We don't need this temple anymore. Why? Because I'm the living temple. All right? You dwell with me. The church is now the Israel of God. We inherit all the promises that God made to Abraham and Christ. And geopolitical, national Israel today has nothing to do with God or the Bible. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't, you know, Israel is an ally. And so, you know, politically we can work with Israel as an ally. I'm not talking about that at all. I'm talking about spiritually, when Christians think we've got to support Israel, whatever they do, that people over there, that state over there has nothing to do with God or the Bible. All right? Believers and only believers are the people of God. He doesn't have a special nation he loves anymore. He loves all people who trust in him, all his chosen. All right, so again, Zionism is just so destructive, okay? And it's just, like I said, I think it robs the church of the blessing of realizing all these promises God made, we inherit. There are promises. I'm the Israel of God. I'm the apple of his eye, Okay? You touch me, you touch the apple, you stick your finger in God's eye, because I'm his child. All right? So there's, it's just some incredible truth here. And again, I would challenge you, please don't take what I say at face value. Study it out. Look at this. Look up these scriptures. Dig into this and find out. It, did Paul redefine Israel? I think it's pretty clear, but I think it makes a huge difference too. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity again to look at your word, to just sit down and study it, scrutinize it, tear it apart, Lord. So many voices out there, Lord, within the church saying so many different things. I just pray you'd give every one of us the heart of a Berean, Lord, and we'd take the things we hear and put them through the filter of the word of God. Does it make sense? Does it line up with scripture? Does it line up with scripture as a whole? Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Thank you for the day and age in which we live and and where study tools are so available that any one of us can dig and research and find the truth of your word. Help us, Lord, not to be deceived. May we know the scripture well enough to know deception when we see it. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Amen. All right, questions, comments? Gary? Seems like um, a lot of the dispensationalists, the ones that say that the church is a parenthesis, <clears throat> don't they realize they're denying the God's omniscience? I mean, he knows everything. He knew what was going to happen, but they don't, they think he made a mistake. Well. <clears throat> <laughs> Dan? I don't know who said it with MacArthur or somebody, but wasn't the second coming for judgment and the first coming was salvation? Yeah, well, the second coming was a judgment coming, That's but see, that's what people miss, you know. I mean, it was judgment to Israel, but it was salvation for, um, you know, church. the elect, you know, the church. Yes, it was consummation of that. That, that 40 years we have to see as a, as a transition, as a Christ event. Starts here, it doesn't end till here. Forty years. It's that second Exodus period, and we got to see it as that. All right, I got a question or comment here from Rico. It says another example of the word "until" is in First uh, Corinthians fifteen twenty-five. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. It doesn't mean that he stops reigning when his enemies are defeated. That's absolutely true, and that's the thing. You know, you get "until" this word wrong, and you think, okay, Christ's not going to reign anymore. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, okay? It's not going to have an end to it. It goes on. The new covenant is an everlasting covenant. So when someone talks to you about the end of the church or the end of days for the church, the church doesn't have last days. It's an everlasting covenant. There's no end times. There's no end days. Um... Donna says, believing Israel does not exist today. Their salvation occurred in AD 70. Do you agree? 
well, the church is Israel. We're the Israel. So Israel does exist in that sense. But yes, we... The, in AD 70, it was consummated. All the promises that God had made to the church, to Israel, they all came together in fulfillment at that time. All right, I got a question from Lydia here. I just want to ask what the difference is between saying the Lord and Yahweh. Ah, good question. You're bouncing on one of my favorite topics here. All right. In the Bible, when you see the word Lord in all capitals, all right, throughout the Tanakh, which we, people call the Old Testament, that is the Hebrew tetragrammaton, yod heh vav all right? And yod heh vav is the name Yahweh. That is God's name. Lord is not His name. The translators have literally, I think, covered up the name of God. God wants His name known. It's almost 7,000 times yod heh vav is found in the Scripture. And so that's why whenever it's translated Lord, I read Yahweh. That's what the Hebrew says, okay? And Yahweh is His name, all right? If you go to Exodus chapter 3 and read there, you know, Moses says, Who should I say sent me? And he says, Ehiah, Asher, Ehiah. And Ehiah is a form of Yahweh. And then a couple verses later, he says, Yahweh, I'm Yahweh, send him, all right? So that is the name of God. And they've always called God by His name. He wants to be called by His name. For a period of time, the Jews thought, we can't say the name, it's too holy to say, so they didn't say it at all, and, and it just, that tradition just carried on, and like, you can't say God's name, you know? And God is not His name either, okay? He is God. That's like, human is not your name. Hey, human! No, that's, I have a name from this human, okay? Well, God has a name. There's a lot of different gods, and they have different names, but Yahweh is the God of gods, the Lord of lords. So that to me, it's, it's you know, and I got weird quirks, I know. It just, to me, it's, I want you to know God's name, okay? His name is a strong tower, and those who run into it are safe. His name represents his character, and so those things are important. All right, a little sermonette on that one, okay? Right, yeah. My sweet Lord, who's that? Krishna, right? That's how he's saying, my sweet Lord. He's talking about Krishna. Okay, let me see here. Um, Bob Crookshank Jr. See, I didn't say just Jr., Bob Crookshank Jr. I'm making a distinction here. Dispensationalists don't even understand their own system. If prophetic time has stopped, there can be no signs today in fulfillment of prophecy. Well, that's true, because the clock stopped, so nothing can happen, you know. But, yeah, let, you don't know how profound that statement is. They don't understand their own system. And I say that because when I was a dispensationalist, I taught dispensationalism scratching my head the whole time. Because as I'd study it, I'd say, how do they get that out of that? But I taught it, because it was the only thing I knew. And as I taught it, I'm like, yeah, I hope you buy this because I'm not. It doesn't make sense. You know, I mean, it really doesn't. They got, you need charts and graphs and signs and all these things to make it all make sense. And then you come across preterism and it's like, oh, wow, that's easy. God said it and he did it. And it's just like, okay, we don't need all these charts and everything else. So, yeah, dispensationalism, it's, as a Christian, it was the most confusing thing I'd ever come across. And I, believe me, I looked at the charts, and I had a Dake's annotated study Bible, and I did all the research I could, and I'm just like, I just don't get how they come up with this. I mean, they'd say, they'd give you a quote of it, something, and then they'd give you a scripture. I happen to look those up, you know, people, that's a good thing to do, okay? And I'd be like, how does this scripture have anything to do with what they're saying? Anything to do with what they're saying. It just, so yeah, it is a very... Confusing, and they've altered it over the years. It's changing now, you know, because they're realizing how dumb it is. So they're, they're they're altering it, they're changing it, you know, getting in some different views there. But for the whole, it's it's the same, you know. Oh, Israel's going to get back in there and be God's people again, and you know they don't see a progression with what God has done. They, he goes back to those people again. All right, anybody else? Yeah, I you know again that. Okay, I thought I saw... Are you going to 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, that's a good point. Uh, Mike Sullivan makes a point. He says, can you briefly discuss the contradiction of dispensationalists to say the everlasting land is eternal and physical, but the everlasting circumcision is spiritually fulfilled in Christ? And that's true. You know, there's a physical thing that they take. Well, no, that's, that's spiritual now, but the land's not spiritual because the land is land. Phys- you know, circumcision can be, you know, made spiritual, but it's, yeah, it is, it's just ridiculous, okay? Uh, they want to hang on to the physical, and somehow that land over there is just so important to them. You know, something happened in the New Covenant once the New Covenant arrived that God had forbid them to do in the past is they were selling their land. They weren't allowed to sell the land. Why? Because the land was God's. And now in the New Covenant, not about land anymore. You can go ahead and sell your land. Sell it. Doesn't matter. Yeah, things change, people. 